0: From Number 5 Chambers, I'm Richard Kimblin and this is the Planning Podcast. Returning to our second opportunity this term to get some updating, some top tips from what's happening in the Court of Appeal and in the Planning Court. We're going to turn shortly to the Court of Appeal with Oliver Lawrence, Planning and Environmental Barrister at Number 5 Chambers, who's going to help us with what's been happening in terms of environmental sentencing. He'll be followed by Leanne Buckley-Thompson, who's going to be helping us with the Court of Appeal and a case called Hillside Parks and their rather tricky consent in the Snowdonia National Park. But first, we're going to turn to Howard Leithhead, Planning Environmental Barrister at Number 5, James, who's going to help us with what's been happening in the planning court so far as cumulative highways' impacts are concerned. Howard, away you go.
1: Yes, Richard, the judgment in um, our Hawkehurst uh, parish council in Tunbridge Wells Borough Council handed down uh, last week in the High Court, a very long judgment about um, the main points about highways, impacts, but some very helpful interpretation from the judge in in that case about three key paragraphs of the NPVF. Uh, Well, in in this case, there was a a proposed development for the erection of 43 retirement apartments. Planning permission was granted and the site was in a village next to a conservation area within the high wield AUNB. There, there were several grounds. The, for the first ground was about highways' impacts, and, and that's really the part of judgment which is of most practical relevance. And importantly, the judge looked carefully at three key paragraphs in the MPPF, 108, 109 and 111. 108, 109 uh, deal with cumulative impacts. The judge interpreted paragraphs 108, 109, And he said that when assessing an application for development, it's necessary to ensure that significant impacts of development on the capacity of the highway network can be cost-effectively mitigated to an acceptable degree, but that there should only be a refusal on the basis if the residual cumulative impacts taking into account any mitigation on the road network would be severe. The key word severe, and as to what constituted severe residual cumulative impacts, for the purposes of paragraph 109, The judge said that that was a matter of planning judgment, exercised in accordance with ordinary public law principles. The second point was uh, the difference in the documentation mentioned in paragraph 111. It refers to a transport statement and a transport assessment. The judge referred to the relevant guidance in the PPG and said the transport statements were a lighter touch evaluation than the more detailed transport statements. And again, the judge said that it was a matter of planning judgment as to what type of document was required in any particular case.
0: Howard, uh, thank you. It sounds like it's up to highways engineers to just get it right, and the court's not going to interfere unless it is profoundly wrong. But there is always the question of policy interpretation, and um, I think that you've been looking at what's been said extrajudicially in that regard, Help us with what was said at the PIBA annual conference.
1: Yes, it's a very similar point, Richard. What Lady Justice Andrews says here is that lots of policies, when you're looking at interpretation of policies, lots of policies don't have a one-size-fits-all answer to the question, what does the policy mean? Or indeed, the question, what does it mean, may not be even susceptible of an answer. And she refers to three cases where this has been an issue, the meaning of openness in the Sam Smith case, and the meaning of um, the concept of valued landscapes in the CEG land promotions case, and also the meaning of exceptional circumstances in Compton Parish Council in Guildford, BC. What she says is that where planning policy is expressed in very broad terms like this, the scope for judicial interpretation is narrow. And she said that's especially where concepts are of a nature which involves the exercise of judgment. And in practical terms, she says that this may well mean that in future there are fewer opportunities for those who are dissatisfied with a planning decision to take the more attractive option of claiming that a policy has been misinterpreted by the decision maker.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Howard. Now let's turn to Oliver and find out what's been happening in the Court of Appeal criminal division.
2: The parties involved on the Environment Agency, and the appellant in this case was called David Ronald Lawrence. I just want to clarify at the outset that we are of no relation at all. Perish the thought. I know. It, w- it would make for an awkward Christmas, this podcast. But, uh, but no, I've never heard of him until I read the judgment. And he's the director of a family business called Lawrence Skip Hire. Let's have some facts. Let's have some facts. Well, um, so to avoid the cost of disposing of unsaleable waste off-site, what the business did was it allowed it just to stay there. And they ignored the warnings from the Environment Agency And as a result, not one but two fires broke out within the same year. And the second fire was the second biggest firefighting operation in Hereford and Worcester in the previous 28 years. That's how the Court of Appeal described it. And in the course of putting out that fire, a toxic soup of chemicals ran into the canal. This lowered oxygen levels in the canal, about 3,000 fish died, and uh, chemical-laden smoke caused significant adverse effect on the air quality in the local area, which included a primary and a secondary school. And so you can see how these are are difficult facts to defend.
0: Tell me, how did this get to the Court of
2: Appeal? Was permission given to appeal? No, so the approach the Court of Appeal took was the permission having been initially refused to appeal by a single judge. The approach it took was to grant leave to appeal, but then to dismiss the appeal. It's my view that they, they did this so that they could properly engage with the appellant's arguments, deal with these these points of law.
0: Well, I noticed that the appellant advocate appeared pro bono and well done to her, but ultimately it seems as though the Court of Appeal was not only unimpressed by the idea of finding it to be manifestly excessive, they thought that the judge... Had got it right.
2: Absolutely. And and they also found that many other judges might well have imposed a more excessive sentence. So there's, a, there's just a slight implication. They thought the, the sentence might have been on the lenient side. They did make a, an interesting finding about the, the construction of the sentencing guidelines.
0: Ah, what did they say about the uh, environmental sentencing guidelines from the Sentencing Guideline Council?
2: Well, uh, just some, some background about the guidelines. What they do is that they provide four categories of harm in descending levels of seriousness. And that's what the the judge of first instance takes into account when he's deciding uh, what sentence to impose. And so in this case, the first instance judge found that the the cumulative effect of harm features that fell in Category 2, so that's the second most serious, serious 1, in combination, they raised the overall harm of the offence to Category 1. And the appellant argued that that approach was not permitted within the guidelines. You can't just take 10 examples of Category 2 harm. And as a result, say, well, there are so many that they, that they fall within Category 1 um, in their totality. Uh, but the Court of Appeal rejected that argument.
0: So it's a case where accumulation of recklessness
2: takes you up a category. So it's a cumulative effect case. Absolutely, much like Howard's planning case. They took what was arguably, in my view, a a purposive construction of the guidelines. In in saying this, in quite stark terms, they said, no one committing such offences should think that multiple aspects of his or her wrongdoing, however grave, will receive no punishment simply because they all fall within one category of harm. That cannot be what the Sentencing Council intended.
0: So in short, what do you think? Is there encouragement there
2: for those who think they've been too harshly dealt with or discouragement? I would say discouragement, because here what you have is the Court of Appeal defending a flexible approach to the guidelines, saying that multiple instances of harm, when combined, can result in an overall offence that was more harmful.
0: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Oliver. Let's now turn to Hillside Parks with Leanne.
3: A case that I found interesting in the last couple of weeks is Hillside Parks Limited and Snowdonia National Park Authority. For those that want to read the judgement, as a bit of additional lockdown reading at the Citations 2020 EWCA Civ 1440. And it's a case that considers the extent to which an extant planning permission can be carried on to completion where there have been variations from the master plan. It also considers the exception set out in the case of Lucas. So this, for those that don't know, is a case whereby the court held that although a local planning authority might have as its objective in granting planning permission for a housing estate, uh, that the whole of it would be developed. It doesn't follow that the permission is conditional such that If development conforms to the layout, but doesn't comprise the whole, it's not permissible. So to give a brief summary of the facts then of Hillside, we have to go all the way back to 1967 when planning permission was first granted. And at that time, there was a master plan for 401 dwellings with a proposed siting for each of those within that master plan, as well as an internal road network. In that same year the first two houses are built but the approved locations found at that time to be the site of an old quarry so as a result of that we then have a series of further planning permissions in order to be able to depart from the master plan. We have to then fast forward again to 1985 and the council has been replaced by then and the site has been required by another party. A dispute then arises between the then county council and the then owner of the site because the county council takes the view that the permission was no longer valid. They said that there was only one condition attached to it in relation to water supply and that was never fulfilled, therefore no lawful development was ever commenced. The permission had lapsed and all subsequent development was carried out pursuant to those subsequent planning permissions rather than the 1967 one. In short, the court didn't agree with that, though, although there was no power to vary a planning permission at that time, of course. The court found that the subsequent permissions were in effect variations of the original 1967 permission, rather than being additional standalone permissions. The court also made several declarations, and those included that development permitted by the 1967 permission had begun, uh, but also that it may be lawfully completed at any time in the future. So how do we then get to the judgment in 2020? Well, we again have to go through a little bit of history, I'm afraid. Um, In 1988, the claimant Hillside Parks Limited acquires the site. And in 1995, the defendant, the Snowdonia National Park Authority, comes into existence. And after that time, there's then eight further departures from the master plan granted by them. We then get to May 2017, and at that point, the authority says, Look, sorry, claimant, we now think that the 1967 permission can no longer be implemented because the developments that have been carried out in accordance with the later planning permissions have now rendered it impossible to implement the original master plan. And they say, Look, we don't want any more works uh, continuing until the situation has been regularised. So this prompts the claimant to issue a partake claim seeking declarations including among other things that the authority is bound by the 1987 declarations that the court made if you recall after the action was launched post-1985 that the 1967 permission was valid and extant and that the permission could be carried on to completion save for where development related to subsequent planning permissions for alternative residential development We find ourselves then in the High Court, His Honour Judge Kaiser QC presiding, and His Honour finds that the judge back in 1987 didn't make an error of law in finding that the permission could be completed at any time in the future, but that the development has now been such that the permission is no longer a physical possibility, Um, any future development pursuant to it could no longer be valid. The claimant's unhappy with that result and appeals. There's five grounds, you'll find them at paragraphs 25 to 29 of the judgment, but of those five grounds it includes that the judge had given his own interpretation of the 1967 permission rather than that of the court, and that he was wrong to conclude that the case of Lucas didn't apply, and that the 1967 permission authorised one single scheme. So, Where do we get to? Well, I'll make it clear to you rather than putting you through any um, agony. The court ultimately found it was no longer possible to implement the 1967 permission. So no changed view on the high court's decision. But there are some helpful bits that we can take from the judgment as practitioners. Just two points to keep it succinct for you today. One, the court confirmed that the authorities' earlier acceptance of the validity of the permission was relevant, but it wasn't an abusive process for them to now argue the contrary. That, I think, is completely understandable, given the amount of factual and legal developments that have taken place, and the court picks up on that as well at paragraphs 75 to 76. And then the second point um, to make is that the case of Lucas is obviously found not to apply to these circumstances. Um, In Lucas, it was a permission for the building of a cul-de-sac, and that was um, such that it could be regarded as a permission for any of the development comprised within it. But the court here says, look, that's a highly exceptional case. Um, It is conceivable that a particular planning permission could be granted for the development to take place in a series of independent acts, such as in that case, and each of those being separately permitted. But with a modern planning permission for a large housing estate, that's unlikely. And I think I can see... Why, and I'm sure you can all see why. For a large housing estate, you will not only have the various pockets of your development in terms of housing, but you'll also have highways, landscaping, etc. that form part of the overall scheme within it as well. And you'll see at paragraphs 78 and 88 to 90 of the judgment where the court talks about that. So, two, I think, helpful um, reminders and points for practitioners to take forward. Doesn't matter if you change your mind, but obviously. It needs to be justified and in in context. So there, with the factual and legal developments being um, significant, and then secondly, this point in terms of the case of Lucas being highly exceptional, uh, which some practitioners might find useful to refer back to.
0: That was the planning podcast from Number 5 Chambers. We'll return before Christmas with our final topical tips update. Until then, stay safe. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.